I hope you are excited to be here this morning, and those of you that are joining us online at home, we welcome you and are glad to have you with us as we come together for our second message in a series of the sovereignty of God. Now, as you came here this morning, we just sung a song about the issue of worship. What is worship? And I want to encourage you this morning, as many of us that are here, we have gathered up the ability, we have understood what it takes, and we are all here for the same purpose, that we decided to have a, make a decision to help us to worship. Those of you that are watching online and those that are sitting with us right now, you made a conscious decision this morning to come together as the assembly of the body of Christ, as a guest, as a friend, as a visitor, to come and worship and maybe to explore who is this God that others worship? Who is this God that we are singing about and worshiping? And often I think that we, we don't take for the value, we don't take the value of what worship truly is often in our own life as much as we should. Just a decision that we have made to put God first above all things and to give this time to him this morning is an act of worship. You know, it goes beyond that when we, when we are on a website or when we see something pop up on a screen. And did you know as a believer in Christ, when you don't click on that ad that you know you ought not be watching, you've made a decision to worship God instead of worshiping the flesh, worshiping the things of the eyes, the flesh, the heart, those other things that draw us to them like a flame to moth, a moth to a flame. When we choose not to partake in things we know now as a believer in Christ that are sinful, folks, we on a daily basis are bombarded with choices to help us worship God. It's not just coming to church on Sunday where we worship him. We worship him in our daily habits of life as we make choices to make sure God is number one in our life. And we guard our hearts and protect ourselves so that we can choose to worship God. Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God Almighty. What a beautiful thing as we gather together today to worship. So in our series of focusing on the sovereignty of God, I will tell you three months ago, I did not know that we would be preaching and talking about this issue of God's sovereignty. But I would share with you during the month of July, God has impressed upon my heart to, the need to remind his people, the body of Christ and our community, our visitors, our friends, about this issue that we serve a God who is sovereign and a God who is still in control, a God who was not caught by surprise with COVID, a God who is not caught by surprise by your circumstances of life, by your loss of a job, loss of finances, failure of health, or any of those other things that we temporarily go through in the seasons of life. Folks, God is still sovereign and in control. Last Sunday, we shared a message from God's word from the Psalms about the issue that we serve a sovereign God who not only owns the cattle on a thousand hills, but knows every step, every creepy, crawly thing. He has planned all the ways. He is in no need of anything that we could possibly do for him other than what we've already discussed, that we gather together to worship him. What a beautiful image. So today I want to share with you as we continue in the series of the sovereignty of God, we're going to talk not only of the sovereignty of God, but today's message is going to focus primarily on the sovereignty of our Savior and the fact that Jesus Christ, according to scriptures and according to what we know, is the sovereign Savior, the only Savior. So if you have your Bible, if you'll turn to Colossians chapter 1, go ahead and find your place there in verse 18. We'll read verses 18 through 20 as our opening text of scripture today. And then we're going to go back and examine verses 15 through 23. And we're going to look at this issue of the sovereignty of Christ. Who is Jesus and what is sovereign about Jesus and why is he sovereign? 
So if you'll go there, the rest of the month of July will focus on not only the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of Christ, the sovereignty of the saint, and the sovereignty of God's purposes, uh, but we will focus on what is God's plan for his creation. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, if you've got your Bible and you're there, say amen. amen. Let's pick up and let's read together Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Let's pray together. So Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for its impact in our life, and we can trust it. It is truthful. It is faithful. It does not change. It is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And Father, we thank you now for this message. We pray that we commit every word and every song sung to your glory, to edify your saints, to equip the church. Lord, may we be the salt and light you called us to be. May we understand the sovereign nature of our Savior, Lord Jesus. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to share with you in a way of message today, we're going to look at four aspects of Jesus Christ's sovereignty as Paul writes to a church in Colossae that's struggling with some heresy issues, it's struggling with some other gospels, and Paul is kind of writing a letter to, to the Colossian church warning them about those issues, and he starts right off the bat with probably one of the most profound treatises or statements that he writes in his letter to this church emphasizing the things that we're going to examine in these short eight verses of Scripture. Paul's going to share the supremacy of Jesus and his sovereignty over all things. Paul's going to talk about the surety of Jesus' sovereignty, and I'll define that for you, and we'll have a better understanding of surety when we look at that text, but also the security of Jesus and his sovereignty and the stability that we can only find in the sovereignty of Jesus Christ. So number one, I want to share with you as we get ready to look at this, look in, if you will, and follow along in verses 15 through 17. As we talk about the supremacy of Jesus' sovereignty, verses 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now let me stop for a minute, and I want to, I want to focus in on something that we see in this text. Many of you are familiar with this word when we look at the image. In the Greek text, the word icon is where we get the understanding of what an image is. Now, Paul is saying that it is this Jesus, that's who the he is in the text, that is the likeness, that is the icon, that is the symbol of what the invisible God is. If you remember and have any understanding of the Old Testament text descripts, it, it tells us in those texts that no man could see God and live. When Moses was on the mountain, God hid him in the cleft of the rocks, and God's shadow passed by, and Moses was turned away. For if any man was to see God, he would die. Paul is writing to the church here saying the very image, the very icon, the very thing that when you go to your phone, if you have a device or a tablet or a GPS map in your car, when you pull up the image, you'll notice that it doesn't really give you any words. It just shows a picture of something. And when you click on that picture, be it your bank account, be it some app that you use, be it PayPal, be it, be it Cash App, be it Grubhub or whatever you do on your phone, you know what you're clicking because you see what it's resembling and you correspond the resemblance of the icon on your phone with the resemblance of the service that's going to be provided to you. Here the writer is saying, Jesus himself is supreme. He is the very image 
of God. And when you click on Jesus, what do you get? You get God's fullness in deity in the flesh dwelling amongst us. So you see, Jesus is the icon of God. Jesus is what you and I could never be. When we go all the way back to Genesis in chapter 3 before the fall, God created man perfect and in his image and in his likeness. The icon of God before the fall is how we were created. We see that in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. In the image of God, in the icon of God. But what happened? We were separated from God because of a thing called sin. And because of that sin in Genesis chapter 3, 23 and onward, you can see that Adam and Eve, Adam and woman, as she was called at that moment, was cast away from God's presence. No longer could man, who once was formed in the image of God, in the likeness of God, now in his fallen state of sinfulness, cast out of the presence of God, could ever again be the image of God himself because sin has stained him. So what did God do? Paul is reminding the church in Colossae that God sent his son to dwell amongst us. Once again, God provided the icon, the image of his invisible invisible attributes in the flesh for you and I to be able to see God in the present. Once again, allowing man to now be reconciled to God and walk with him, to talk with him along life's merry way. What a wonderful thing we have now in the icon of Jesus that we can once again be reconciled in the very image that we were created in to walk with God and to be restored with him. But not only is he the image of the invisible God, the scripture goes on to tell us in verse 16 that he is supreme over all, not over some, over all things. I remember as a young Sunday school teacher in a church that I attended, one of our Sunday school ladies, she was committed. We were going out on outreach and evangelism teams together. And, and one day she, she comes back to the church on a Sunday morning and she's telling a story about her trip to Six Flags over Georgia. And she says how she went to this trip. She had this t-shirt. Many of you may remember the got milk theme when got milk was a big deal in, in the marketplace and got milk with all our dairy farmers was the, the slogan. And you'd see the shirts that said got milk question mark. Well, she had a black shirt and it said got Jesus question mark on it. And she wore that to the amusement park that day, and she tells the story how she was confronted by this rather large African-American gentleman, about six foot six. Now, she's not a, she's not a very big lady. She's about yay, yay tall. And he comes up to her in all 200 plus pounds that he was, six foot six, towering over her, points at her chest and says, what's that all about? In a kind of angry tone. She didn't know what to do. What do I do with this? So she begins to explain the supremacy of Jesus. She begins to tell him, well, sir, you see, I serve a Jesus that came from heaven, that dwelt on this earth, that was tempted by everything that man was ever tempted with, but yet found to be without sin. He became sin, who knew no sin, so we may be his righteousness. You see, my supreme sovereign Jesus is Lord. Muhammad's still in the grave, but Jesus rose from the dead. And that big, tall, towering, six-foot-six African-American looked at her, and he got a big smile on his face. He says, I was just checking, sister. I wanted to make sure you knew what you believed. Gave her a big hug and said, you keep on strong in the faith. You see, folks, we have a God that is supreme, that is better than Muhammad, who's still in the grave. That's better than anything we often try to serve in the little G's of our life that we've made our gods. 
We serve not only the icon, the image of the invisible God, Jesus here who dwelt with us, but also the supremacy. Look four ways with me in verse 16 of how Paul tells the church God is supreme, that this Jesus is supreme. Number one, he's supreme over all of creation, everything. There is nothing that Jesus is not sovereign over. Look in verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Folks, if that don't get you your fire started, your wood's wet, right? We understand that Jesus was the supreme, the supreme God and all things created for him and through him. How could we worship a God any better than the God we worship in Christ Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God the Father? Folks, there is no greater, there's no icon greater than Jesus Christ. He is supreme over all creation, but notice he's not bound by the geography limits that we often know. You see, if we want to go out overseas, we've got to kind of get on a boat or get on a plane. We've got to use some other means. God is sovereign over all geography, not only here, but in heaven. He says heaven and on earth. God reigns, Christ reigns supreme. Let me remind you something, that when Jesus went into the depths of the earth, when he went into the tomb that was carved out, and he rose on the third day, not only did he conquer death, but today he sits at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. He is not a dead God, he is the living Savior. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I am in the presence, Jesus said. I am a living Savior. I am sovereign in heaven and on earth. Notice he goes on, the writer, to tell us about his supremacy in the issue of being visible and invisible. It's amazing how much God does for you and I that we don't even know he's doing. How much Jesus has protected us from that we don't even know was coming our way, but he got involved in it and sent his ministering spirits and angels to protect his saints and his people from sheer calamity and disaster from time to time. I remember as a 16-year-old, I had recently gotten my driver's license, and as a good 16-year-old boy, I was helping chauffeur all these girls around. They needed a ride. And I remember pulling up to a traffic light, and I normally do like most boys. I'm in a hurry to get where I'm going, even though I don't know where that is yet. And the traffic light turns green, and I normally just get on down the road. But for some reason, my foot was stuck to the to the, the, the stop pedal, the brake. And I had about a three or four second pause before I went through that green light. And sure enough, as I'm sitting there for some reason with my foot on the brake still, 18-wheeler loaded with logs goes right in front of my truck, my car, right through the traffic light. Folks, I don't know how many times God has spared my life so that his purpose for me could be fulfilled in what he's called me to. I can go on and on. I don't have time today to share all the stories where I know God's sovereign, supreme reign has controlled and prevented circumstances, both visible and invisible, things I didn't even know. But I would argue he's doing the same in your life. He's doing the same in all of our lives, especially for those who confess him as Lord and Savior. But he's supreme king over all thrones and dominions. Notice what the writer says. All thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, there is nothing that is more supreme in its control and its rule than Jesus. Not our constitution, not our president, 
not our town board, not our elected officials, not our law enforcement, not our armed forces as great as they are. No one is more supreme than Jesus. What an awesome understanding of his supremacy. When we look at that, we can understand truly who it is that we serve. And my closing point for the message, is Jesus supreme in your life? Does Jesus reign? Now that word reign means he's the one in control. And if he is in control over all thrones, all dominions, heaven and earth, all creation, visible, invisible, who reigns sovereign in your life? Is it Jesus? I wouldn't want anybody else pulling the reins but him. Jesus must reign supreme in our life. Well, how do we do that? What is that? How do we become that? How do we have the surety in Jesus' sovereignty? Now, the surety, I'll define it for you in a minute, is one who has become legally liable for the debt, default, or failure in duty of another. Look in verse 18 with me. And he is the head, the body, the church. Now, pause there for a minute. Notice what it says. He and he is the head of the body, the church. Now, you might have thought you came to church today, but I would argue when we come to the assembly, the ecclesia, the body of Christ, when we gather together, we are the assembly. But Jesus is the church, and we're his body. He is the head. He is sovereign. He is in control. Now, we may follow our procedures and our traditions and our constitution and bylaws and these other man-made documents that we have, but I would argue there is one document that the church follows, and it's his word, the living word. And you know the Bible tells us the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Who did it dwell in? It dwelled in his Jesus, in Christ, in the sovereign God, and he is the head of the body the church. That's who we serve. That's who this is all about. Our Savior that we worship. He is in the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. Look at verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. When we examine the word surety, we can use some synonyms for this. Some synonyms for surety would be certainty, assurance, a guarantee. And again, one who has become legally liable for the debt, default, or failure in duty of another. Jesus is our surety in life. We're going to explain it. Number one, the the writer tells us the surety of his preeminence amongst us. There is no one greater. There is no one who comes over or above. There is no one who outranks. To be preeminent means to be or become ranking above all. There is no greater name that we could possibly worship. The Bible tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. The King of Kings, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, the finisher and author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. What a precious name it is, Jesus. He is not only preeminent, but the surety of his deity, the fact that we can take guarantee, assurance, or have certainty in the fact that who he was. Notice what the writer tells us about this aspect of Jesus' deity. Now, we can go to the Gospel of John and get it in the first, in the prologue of John, if you will. The first few verses tell us about this man, this God who became flesh in the Word, and he dwelt amongst us. But here we can see it also in verse 19. For in him, the him is Jesus, 
all the fullness of God, and notice this last part, was pleased to dwell. Not that God's presence in Jesus had dwelled at one time and then left him, but that it still dwells in Christ. For in him all the fullness of God. Now, if you study the scriptures, you'll realize that no man can see God, as I've explained earlier, that no man has the fullness of God. We're not even full of God yet. We've got the Holy Spirit as a down payment, a deposit, a guarantee of the fact that we belong to Jesus. But notice the scripture says he was fully God and fully man. There are some who believe, and there were heresies in the first century and second century church, that believed that Jesus was a normal man like everyone else. And that because of his goodness and his purity, God gave him a special touch of the Holy Spirit, a special touch of divinity that lasted for about three and a half years. And and then all of a sudden, the Spirit of God left Jesus when he was put on the cross. And it wasn't God's deity that died on the cross. It was just a man in the flesh. Folks, that's a lie from hell. Don't believe it for a moment. Notice the scripture says that in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. See, Jesus was fully God and fully man. And on that cross of Calvary, he didn't give up being fully God and fully man. But what he did is he took on our debt. The surety that we have in Jesus is the fact that Jesus himself became liable, legally responsible for the debt, the default, and the failure of us. There's a word that we don't talk about often in church. And and here's a a message for the church. And if you're listening at home, I, I hope that it's my prayer that when we have been surrounded by the things of God so much in our life, that we get tired of hearing about the simple truth of the gospel message. There's a term that we don't use much. It's called penal substitution. Penal substitution is nothing more than this, that there's a debt that's been incurred, that because I broke the law, there has to be a righteous and justice requirement that is fulfilled in order for me to be brought back into right standing. We have a criminal justice system. We understand that the scales of justice have to be balanced properly. If you commit a crime, you have to do the time, as the rhyme goes. You see, in penal substitution, we understand that this fully God, fully man, the fullness of God that dwelt in Jesus, that went to the cross of Calvary, took on our sin. He who knew no sin became sin so we may be his righteousness. And we know this happened because even though Jesus was there before all things were created and all things for Jesus, there was a moment in the life of God incarnate, Emmanuel, when Jesus lifted up and the scripture records for us that he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. You see, this Jesus in the fullness of God that dwelt had never not known being in the presence of the Father, had never not known what it was like to be out of communion like Adam in the garden who once heard God's presence in his footsteps, but now to be cast out and the garden to be guarded by cherubim with flaming swords, who was no longer allowed to benefit in the reconciled relationship of knowing his God, his creator. Jesus had never experienced that. Being in the fullness of God, God was pleased to dwell with him. But on the cross, you see, he took on our debt. The penal substitution was that a debt that we owed, for there are none righteous, no, not one, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. On that cross, at that moment, we know Jesus bore our sin because the Father turned his back. As Jesus took on our sin 
And God incarnate, Christ Jesus, understood what it meant to be separated from his Father. Why? For you and me. But the best part of the story is it tells us that when he died and he breathed up his last, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he tells us that the tabernacle, there was a curtain that separated the holy of holy places where the Shekinah glory of God's spirit would dwell amongst the people of Israel, where God would allow his people to go into this place once a year to offer an atonement to sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant to cover over the sin, never purifying it, but just making an atonement for it. It says that when Jesus gave up his spirit, the sky went dark, and that tabernacle, that temple, that curtain that was almost six feet thick was torn from the top to the bottom. You see, God's presence no longer dwells in a facility made by man. It dwells in the heart of every person who is a believer in Christ Jesus. The story goes on even richer and tells us that the earth shook and rocks broke open and spirits rose from the dead. And the centurion who had been at the crucifixion of Jesus falls to his knees. And he says, surely this must have been the Son of God. Folks, that's the supreme Jesus. That's the surety of his preeminence, that there is no one greater. That's the surety of his deity, that he is fully God. God dwelt with him. He never stopped dwelling with Jesus to that moment on the cross. But, but check this part out, the surety of reconciliation. Look what the writer goes on to tell us about this last part in verse 20. And through him, him being Jesus, to reconcile to himself, himself being Jesus, all things, <coughs> all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. In order to know peace, you've got to know war. In order to have peace, you've got to be able to overcome war, conflict. And in Christ Jesus, because of the cross, <coughs> excuse me, the scripture tells us because of his blood, we have been able to come into reconciliation. The surety of reconciliation means we have an ability. Folks, God has given us 66 books that all deal with the same issue of reconciling God's creation back to himself. All 66 books are nothing more than a way for us to understand the length and depth and breadth and width that God is going to to get our attention and to point us to Jesus from the moment he cast Adam and woman out of the garden. God has set his plan in motion to reconcile us all back to him through his son. Even in the curse in Genesis 3.23, right around that area you'll find these words. As God curses the serpent, you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. Referring to Jesus. Proto-evangelium is the great term that we use for that. Where the first gospel we see was all the way back in Genesis. It wasn't John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The first gospel message was given by God. We see it in the garden in chapter 3. The foreshadowing of the coming Messiah, the Jesus. So let me, let me close this point with an illustration of reconciliation. Now, you've got to understand your audience to be a good preacher. So I want to share with you an image of something. Many of our, our young folks have no clue what this is. This is called a checkbook balance ledger. ledger. And what it's used for is to help us understand that when we have money, we put it in an account. And then when we write out checks, we've got to balance the two to offset them. 
And we know that if we write more checks than we have money, then we do a thing called bouncy bounce. And it comes back to you with fees attached, right? And see, we have to go through that checkbook and we have to make sure that as we're spending money, we've got enough in the account to cover what is spent. You see, reconciliation with God works similar in that we have a debt we owe because of a sin check we've cashed. But the question is, is there enough money in the bank to cover the debt of the sin? And the answer without Jesus is you've got insufficient funds to cover the debt. You see, Jesus' blood on the cross of Calvary put a balance in our ledger that never goes in the negative. He's always there to cleanse us of our sin. The Bible tells us that if we repent of our sin and confess Jesus as Lord, then we will be saved. We confess Jesus with our mouth. We believe in our heart that he was raised from the dead. Then we will be saved. You see, Jesus wants to reconcile our spiritual ledger book and get us in a positive balance for all eternity. That's what reconciliation is. Christ came as the great reconciler. So let me ask you this question. In your spiritual life, what's the balance in your checkbook look like? Has Jesus put in all the funds you will ever need? Is he the assurance that whatever cash checks you're writing, he's covering them with his blood? Do you know that for sure? Or are you writing checks with insufficient funds that will never cover the debt? For salvation is the gift of God. It's not by works, lest no man shall boast. It's by faith and faith alone. There's nothing we can do to earn it. There's nothing we can do to deserve it. But accept Christ, repent of our sin, believe that he died on the cross, was placed in a tomb on the third day. He rose again. Folks, the Bible makes it clear. We can have the assurance of eternal life through Christ Jesus. Folks, that's a debt you can settle right now. You can settle it out of court. No fees attached. You just got to turn to Jesus. What does he want? He wants all of you. Don't believe the lie. He just wants a little party. He don't want your Sunday mornings. He don't need your Sunday mornings. He wants all of you every day, all day, in the 24 hours that he created, that he made, for he is supreme over all creation. He wants all of you. One day we will stand before God, and he will do a checkup, not from the neck up, but from our heart. Are we a child of God? Thirdly, let me share with you, What the message is telling us is about the issue of security. The security of Jesus and his sovereignty. Look with me in verse 21 for a moment. We'll read verse 21 and 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now stop there for a minute. Let me me rein us in. Most all of the New Testament scriptures that we have, at least in the, the, the Pauline epistles, the general letters, the book of Revelation, the prophecy book that we have in the New Testament, folks, they're all written to the church. Don't for a minute think as a church that God's talking about just the heathen and I can tune him out here. These letters were written for us who believe that we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain for you and I, unblemished, perfect, unspotted, If we put our trust and faith in him, Paul's writing to you and me and the church in Colossae because there were issues and they needed to hear. He wasn't writing to the heathen. 
While there's residual effect for them, these letters were to the people of God for the things of God to be about the will of God doing what God wants us to be doing. So put that frame of mind in reference as you look at this. Paul is reminding them and you and I of where we once were and you who once were alienated. So if they were once alienated, there's got to be a change in status. So he's not talking to the lost, to the heathen. He's talking to the church. Why the need for a reminder? Oh, how leaky our vessels are. We forget, don't we? He says, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So let me give you an image real quick of a retina scan. Now in our modern day of biometrics, you may have seen some of the movies and you may work in a place. You may have seen some place like the CDC and some highly secured areas for technology. Then in order to enter into the facility, you've got to stick your eyeball up against this little camera. And it's going to not only just look at your fingerprints, the outward proof. Right? It's not only going to look at your ID card that gave you access into the building. It's not going to trust just the security guard that was standing at the counter that looks at you and says, yeah, you pretty much look like Virgil. I'll let you go through. No, no. In a high secure facility, you've got to put your eyeball up against the machine. And what's it do? It goes through the eyeball outer layer and gets into your retina. And in that retina is a specific fingerprint, if you will of what your retina looks like. Only yours. It scans through it to see who you are. Let me share with you a few security things that the security scan of our Savior is going to pierce through and understand about who we are on the inside. Not just our outward appearance. Not just our fingerprints. Not just our Bible that we carry. Not just the Jesus ictus bumper sticker on the back of our car. He's going to look past all the superficial issues and he's going to pierce not into our eye, but into our soul. And here's some things that he's going to observe. Number one, as I shared with you, once alienated and hostile, well, we're no longer there. God's canceled that debt. He's going to recognize that. He's going to know that there's the fingerprint of Jesus in our life. The day we come to faith in Christ, it's going to be there. When he does the scan, when he sees into the heart of man, he's going to recognize that we're no longer alienated. We're no longer hostile. Now, church, don't forget those days. I think we often get wrapped up in our religiosity that we forget who we once were. It's a good reminder, as Paul's given to the church in Colossae, and for us to remember, do you remember when you were alienated from the things of God? Do you remember when you were hostile? I remember. My wife saying, we need to start tithing, and I was lost as a heathen. Had no clue who Jesus really was. Definitely didn't understand his sovereignty. My wife said, tithe. I said, babe, I can't pay the bills. You want me to give my money to some preacher so we can ride a nice Harley? I don't think so. I was hostile to the things of God. I remember hearing my first Baptist sermon, and I knew my wife had talked to the preacher about everything I was doing wrong. Right? She had nothing to do with it. It's called conviction of the Holy Spirit. And I remember telling her something to the effect of, I ain't going back to that church. That was stupid. You remember the days when we were alienated and when we were hostile towards the thing of God? Yeah, they were in my life too. Good reminder for me of where I was and where God has brought me to understanding his supreme nature, his sovereign rule, the surety of my salvation and the security that I have in Jesus once consumed by evil deeds. Now I can fight off with the spiritual warfare that I know to have. The shield of faith. 
All those other elements, I can stand the temptations of the evil one, and I can choose to worship God instead of worshiping my desires. But Paul's reminding the church that they too were consumed by evil, but no longer so. Look how he shifts to the present tense now, as he not only reminds them of their past, but recommends and and helps reaffirm them of the future. Notice what he says in verse 20. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Jesus has ransomed us by his death. You ever watch a movie and you see a child or you study one of those History Channel documentaries? I remember watching one on a gentleman who was one of the most wealthiest men of the time, like top five during the years that he had massed his wealth. And they had abducted, they being some foreigners, had abducted, abducted his son while he was traveling abroad overseas. We call it kidnap for ransom today. It's a pretty valuable business, lucrative around the world. They had abducted his son. And the man who had more money than he knew what he could do with, who could write out the check for the $3 million ransom, his comment was, no, I'm not giving in. Because if I do, where will it stop? Next week, they'll they'll kidnap my granddaughter. Next week, they'll kidnap so-and-so. And he chose not to pay the ransom. Now, you can imagine his son didn't like that too much. His son was a little upset with Dad that his life was not worth the $3 million that they had asked him for. And sometimes we look at God the same way. We think that God is not willing to, to ransom us, that he doesn't love us in that way. Jesus went to the cross for you and I. He said, you're not only worth $3 million. I will give my life and trade it for yours. And I'll take on all of your debt. And I'll write a check that no man could cash to ransom you back to the Father. I will go to the greatest lengths ever known to reconcile my creation back into my order so that you may be my child. And he did that by going to the cross and ransoming you and I. He paid the penal substitution. He took on the cost of sin so that you and I may be. Look what we see next. What are we to be because of this ransom? Notice he he tells us the terminology here. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Now don't misunderstand this for a moment. You are not holy because of you. You are not blameless because of what you do or don't do. You are not above reproach because of you or because of anything that we choose to do. We are holy and blameless and above reproach before God because of Jesus. It doesn't get any clearer than that. You can't work your way into righteousness. You can't earn good favor with God. We don't do what we do, as James would remind us. I'll show you my works, my faith by what I do. We do what we do because of Jesus. Because he made us holy, he made us blameless, he makes us above reproach. And on the day we stand before God, and he scans not your retina, but he scans your heart, he won't recognize all of your works, he'll recognize Jesus that makes you holy, that makes you blameless, that makes you above reproach. Folks, if that ain't the surety and the assurance of God, if that ain't the security of knowing that Jesus is supreme and sovereign over all things. Let me close with this point. One day we will all stand before God. And as we put our hearts and our heads up to the the scanning machine of God's understanding, his omniscience, and he looks in, what will he find? Will it be the DNA of Jesus 
that runs through your life, that's captured your heart, that's filled that void that Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. Has Jesus filled that spot? Are you a child of God? Will you pass the test when you stand before him? If not, you can. Jesus said, for whoever calls upon me, if we call upon Jesus, if we repent of our sins, now granted, no man comes to the Father unless he calls us to him, but I would argue if you have the conviction in your heart wherever you are today and you've heard his call, God's calling you into repentance, into a relationship with Jesus. That's the way God works. He chooses to use us. He doesn't have to. He's sovereign and supreme. But he chooses to use you and I. Our last point, number four, and I'll close with, with this last part of our message. I want us to examine verse 23 for a minute and find the stability that we can only find in the sovereignty of Jesus. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Notice in verse 23 that it's the same gospel that Paul's talking about here that's the heart of it all. Not some other gospel, not some other teaching, not some other doctrine. It's the heart of the gospel. The death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus. The penal substitution, the atonement for our sin. To make it complete, to make us holy, blameless, and above reproach. Right here in verse 23, again, the gospel. So how do we find stability? Let me give you three factors that are in the text of verse 23 that we can take away from. Number one, it starts by faith and it continues in faith. Right at the very beginning, if indeed you continue to persevere, to strive forward, to go ahead, to stay in it, in the faith. Now again, we do what we do as believers in Christ because we know Jesus commands us to do things. Like love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your strength. To love your neighbor as yourself. Why do we feed at a soup kitchen? Because Jesus tells us to love our neighbors. Why do we do work and repair a roof on an elderly house? Why do we take care of the widow? Why do we care for the orphan? Why do we support missions around the world? Because Jesus tells us to. But that doesn't earn our salvation. It's by faith and faith alone. Paul reminds the church, continue in the faith. My number two, he says, stable and steadfast. Now, let me give you an example of stability for a moment. That stability comes with exercise. I go to the doctor's office and I said, Doc, I'm, I'm having a little bit of back problems. And my back's been hurting me a lot. And I just, it's just, you know, I think I need an MRI. I think I got a back problem. And the doc, you know, does what doctors do in their intellect and wisdom. And he sums you up. And then he looks at your chart. And then he looks at that. And then he looks at you again. And he looks at the chart. And he says, Well, I'm not sure you got a back problem, but I know you got a front problem. He said, your core's weak. You got too much belly. You need to lose some weight. I said, well, that's pretty forward, isn't it, doc? He said, well, what did you come here for? You want a diagnosis or do you want me to just tell you what you want to hear? I said, wow, okay. He said, so let me tell you what you can do to exercise, to gain some stability. I want you to focus on your core muscle groups. And then he goes on to explain all these exercises that I still don't do, obviously, right? But he tells me that exercises will help me with stability. If we have a shoulder rotator cuff surgery, what's the physical therapist make us do a week after surgery? Got to get your arm up, right? Got to get it raised up. They start exercising your body. You have a knee surgery, what do they do? They put you on the bike to get that rotation going, to make you be able to bend that knee 90 degrees. Got a hip problem, what do they do? They make you walk up and down the hall the same day of your surgery when it's been replaced. They make you exercise it. 
Folks, I would argue the same thing is true in our spiritual walk, that stability comes, as Paul's talking about here to the church in Colossae, not only through faith, but how do we get stable? We've got to exercise our faith. That develops the muscle groups, the core, if you will, that makes us strong to be able to stand up. We've got to exercise our faith. It's not a come and absorb in our culture of consumerism where the American sits and is just constantly fed and then walk away. Okay, what's next? Folks, that's not the Christian faith and Christian walk that's often proclaimed in many places today. It's not about coming and getting your fill. It's about so that we may exercise our faith and have the stability that is needed to stand up to make the muscle groups function like they need so we can be strong. But lastly, steadfastness comes with trials. I, will, I love the show, the documentary on the Discovery Channel. I don't like the ocean, right? I could never be a sailor. I, you forget it. Waves come and I'm out of here. I check out. Right? I don't like the ocean, big waves. So I watched the Discovery Channel, the greatest catch or what is it, the, uh, the deadliest catch. And what strikes me as interesting, number one, it just, yeah, I still have nightmares about it, right? But I watch it because I'm intrigued. And they always have a guy on a new boat every season that they call him the Greenhorn. Now, if you think about it for a minute, why Greenhorn? What's it mean? And as the camera crew is watching the Greenhorn throughout the first few shows of the season, the Greenhorn, every time a big wave comes, he gets knocked over. The rest of the crew's picking at him, making fun of him. Every time they're pulling a pod in, he gets in the way and almost gets crushed by a thousand pound pod. He gets his foot caught in the rope as they're throwing the buoy out and almost loses his leg. He's always doing stuff, causing himself to potentially get injured. Isn't it funny in our spiritual life, until we begin to exercise that steadfast through those trials, we don't learn until we get some experience under our belt. A new believer comes to Christ and they start to have struggles and trials. And they think, I thought if I just came to Jesus, all this problem was going to go away. And they lose their balance on the ship and get crushed by the crab pot of life. Folks, when we learn to stand through those trials, guess what happens? In season three, that greenhorn, he's not getting knocked over by the waves anymore. He's hopping and popping like the rest of the crew and he's in sync with what's got to go on. He's no longer at risk, and the folks begin to not focus on him anymore, but focus on the next guy that's coming behind him to make sure he don't get killed on the ship. You see, the greenhorn's caught on, and he's exercised it. Folks, steadfastness in our faith only comes through the exercise and the trials of life as we learn to lean on God, and we learn from God's Word how we're to handle those things that come at us. Let me close this message with an illustration. An illustration quickly. Now, you, you may not be a, an outdoors working person. You may not have ever put fuel in anything in your whole life. That's okay. That's why I gave you a picture. There's a product called Staybill. And I learned this, that if, I, if, I, if I've got a lawnmower or, or an expensive boat engine, right, those get pretty pricey, or i got a chainsaw or a weed eater or something, and I put today's gasoline in it, and say I run it for a season, and I set it up in the, in the shed over the wintertime. The next spring when I go to start that weed eater, that lawnmower, or that chainsaw, more than likely, if I haven't put something in its fuel system, if I haven't put something in the tank, the tank's gonna, that gasoline's going to turn to varnish. And it's going to clog up the jets and the, the fuel system of that, that device, whatever I'm using. And I'm going to pull on it and pull on it. It's not going to start. Then I'm going to smash it against the concrete because my flesh will come in, right? Just kidding. But unless I put an additive into the tank, it's not going to start. But I know that if I put the additive in, 
I can run that thing until the tank goes dry, and it's going to run just fine. I've learned that over the years. Put a little in now, and you'll run it till the tank's gone. How's that relate to our life? Here's a picture of what we need to be putting in our tank. When we put in the Word of God, when the Bible and God's Word is going into our tank, God will allow us to keep running until our tank is dry and He calls us home. You see, it's what we put in our tank. It's the Word of God. It's the thing that gives us the stability through exercise. It gives us the steadfastness to withstand the trials of life. The Word of God is what goes in us to keep us strong so that we may find stability through Jesus. And through that, we can run all season long until God calls us home or He comes for His church, whichever happens. We can have the stability that we need in our life. So I hope this encourages you today and challenges all of us. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, God's speaking just to you and to your heart, right where you're at, in your living room, in your bedroom, at the dining room table, right here sitting in a church pew. Do you know Jesus Christ as the sovereign Savior, the author and perfecter of your salvation that bore the debt on Calvary's cross for your sin and for mine? Do you know that you know without a shadow of a doubt that there's been a time in your life where you've repented of your sin, you've confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, asked him to come into your life, and not just buy your fire insurance, but Lord, be the Lord of my life, all of me. If you know that for sure, then rest assured today, brother and sister, you are a child of God. No matter what fiery flames and arrows Satan tries to, the deceiver tries to throw at you, you are a child of God. Stand strong, stand firm, ingest his word, and you will have the stability and steadfastness you need to withstand. If you're not a child of God today, you can be. Say, Lord, I know I'm a sinner. Lord, I believe you died on the cross of Calvary for my sin. You took on my debt. You are the reconciler. Lord, I place my trust and faith in you.